0: Hi, Pastor Chad Tucker here from Doxa Church in Burlington, North Carolina. To learn more about our new ministry and to find out about how you can partner with us, visit us online at doxaburlington.com. That's D-O-X-A Burlington.com We hope you enjoy the message. As we continue our study of the letters of the seven churches, we are asking ourselves several questions. What is it about these churches that we ought to be emulating what is it about these churches that God commends and uh, and therefore that we would want to, to be a part of doxa and then what are the things that God critiques or condemns what is it that we want to guard against that we want to make sure doesn't become a part of our DNA and who we are We've made it to the six of seven churches, and as we've said before, this is the last good church, uh, if you will. Uh, the next church, uh, the church of Laodicea, certainly was not, and we'll see some things when we get there uh, in the coming weeks. But because this is a church at Philadelphia, and this is a good church, we want to take our time and study uh, this uh, letter very carefully. In fact, if there was a church that I think that we should seek to emulate, uh, a church that we would seek the characteristics to be a part of who who we are, that this would would be it. I'm thankful that the desire for terms of church would look like that are not, you know, church across the street or down the road or church that's embraced, embraced this model, and we're not trying to mimic or copy anything that anyone has done. But I do think as we study God's Word, and particularly if the Lord Jesus Christ talks to, to this church, writes a letter to this church, and, and though we've seen him write some, what we would call some pretty blistering comments uh, and warnings to these churches to even go and remove their lampstand, then when we come across a letter like this, where he um, embraces and supports it and commends them, we want to study this carefully and see how our church can align with the practices to which uh, this church is doing. And I think in doing so, though they didn't do it perfectly because they're not a perfect church, and we're not going to do it perfectly because we're not a perfect church, I do think that it gives us a, a, a goal to strive for, it gives us a direction to move in, and gives us an opportunity to to uh, guard some things to keep from coming in, uh, and to embrace some things uh, that we should embrace and that we would desire to uh, come in. And so because there's so much richness in this particular letter, we are just kind of moving slowly and unpacking it verse by verse and phrase by phrase. There are many, many wonderful promises even in this particular letter that we are getting to and we've already seen, uh, that, that it's certainly uh, worthwhile to, to take our time and to soak on, uh, the, meditate on the truths that are found here in this letter. So Revelation chapter 3, verse 7, we've already looked in uh, verse 7 and we're going to finish verse 7 and begin to look in verse 8 today. Uh, Verse 7 and 8 today. Let me read these verses so they'll be uh, on the forefront uh, of our mind and um, then we'll get into uh, our study, what we're going to look at today. In verse 7, the Bible says, Remember, these are the words of the Lord Jesus to John on the Isle of Patmos. Uh, it's Patmos, uh, is how you would pronounce it. Uh, I know many people say Patmos, but how they would pronounce it would be Patmos. Uh, write to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. And we've said it's angel slash messenger. And particularly when we get to the next letter, you'll see why I've kind of insisted from the beginning. We've seen some other examples that if he's writing to the messenger and he says you're in danger of going to hell, it can't be to an angel. Um, and so, I, I believe that the same word angelos is a word for angel, a word for messenger, that these are human messengers, perhaps representative of the churches. Now, when we get out of, when we get out of Revelation chapter 3, every time you see the word angel going forward, uh, it's going to be an angel like you have in mind in terms of, of angel. Uh, But here uh, in these letters, as we've looked at and dealt with extensively in the past in our study, uh, I believe that these letters were distributed to um, representatives of these churches and they would follow the mail route and that every church along the way would read the letter written to the other church. And the reason I say that is because he says in each of these letters... Uh, he says, for example, in just look at chapter 3, verse 6. Let anyone who has ears to hear, listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. So I believe that as the Lord Jesus wrote these letters, and John distributed them to the messengers, and as they went along the mail route, that they would receive the letter written to their church, but also want to hear the letters that the, that Christ wrote to the other churches as well. And then it supersedes just these seven churches in Asia Minor and to incorporate all of the churches. So our desire is that God would give us eyes to see and ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches, including Dox church. So right to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, and Philadelphia is a city, you know, that's not the, it is the city of brotherly love, uh, but not literally what it means. Phileo is love, uh, Adelphos is a brother in the original language, so when you see Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, that is exactly what that, what that means. It means brotherly love, but this of course is not, uh, northeast United States. This would be in Asia uh, Minor. So write to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. Thus says, and we said the Holy One, and that's a title. Uh, you can go back and see that Jesus was designated as the Holy One when the demon said, we know who you are, the Holy One of God. Uh, that's a title. The true one. The, and we also spent the last two weeks looking at the one who has the key of David. Who has the key of David. And what we've seen in our study of that, and the reason I spent two weeks unlocking the Davidic covenant, uh, if you will, is so that we might understand what this key is about without understanding the context in which it's written, then we apply the next statement into any area that we want to apply. And in doing so, we'll miss the main idea of why it's included in the letter to Revelation. So let me read it. The one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will close, and who closes and no one will open. Verse 8, I know your works, look, I have placed before you an open door that no one can close. So you see this idea of there's this key and it's talking about opening and closing a door. and Opening and closing a door. If we don't see the context of the key of David and we just talk about God opening and closing doors, then we would come perhaps to right theology that says that if God provides a new place to work, He's going to move you to a new city. He's going to open a door for a job. Then God, yes, you could easily and be theologically accurate to say, God has opened a door for me to go to this city and to work this job. At the same time, if you are working and you lose your job or, or that opportunity ends... If you trust and believe in the sovereignty of God, then you could very well say that this is a door that God has closed. That God has closed. Because God is sovereign over every detail, because God is sovereign over everything in life, God is certainly the one who opens the door, and He's certainly the one who closes the door. And God always does what He does for a purpose. So when God opens the door, He opens it for a purpose. And when God shuts down or closes the door, He does so for a purpose as well. And somehow, in some way, that will always reflect back to our good and His glory if we know Him and we trust Him. But what I want you to see here is, is this is not just that God has a key, Jesus has a key, and and He just uh, opens and closes doors as He wants to. And anytime we give Him credit for opening and closing doors, then we give Him glory, and that's great. And let's move on to the next thing. Because He says, "Who has the key of David. He has the key of David. And so what we want to do is we want to see what in particular is he talking about having this key of David and what door is he speaking of in terms of opening and closing doors. We want to understand it in the context and that's why we spent the last two weeks looking at the Davidic covenant. The covenant God established with David. You will remember from our studies in the last two weeks that God's covenant with David uh, is a covenant that says that God will establish David's throne forever. And there will be a king on the throne of David which will be established forever. And from there, from there, he will reign and from there he will rule the nation's And there will be no end to his throne. We've looked in past weeks and we've said when God established his covenant with David, with David and he gave promise after promise after promise, if we look at the first coming of Christ, we do not see the fulfillment of those promises. And therefore, that leaves us with a dilemma. For example, the liberal scholars will look at this and say, well, if Jesus is the King, I mean, they were mocking Him when they hung Him on the cross and said, King of the Jews, they were mocking Him. Jesus never one time reigned and ruled. He never one time sat on the throne of David in Jerusalem. Surely, He is not the Messiah. You Bible-believing people are... Well, you're being ridiculous and you're fooling yourself. And us who are Bible-believing people, we would say, oh, no, it didn't happen when Christ first came. But that doesn't mean it won't happen. we who believe the Bible say that though it hasn't happened, we would say it hasn't happened yet. And so we're still... Awaiting the fulfillment of the promises of the Davidic covenant, and the majority of the promises—I would say, probably all of the promises—other than the ones about Jesus being born king—are second coming promises. Right, our second coming promises. In other words, when Jesus came first, Jesus came to redeem before He came to reign. And aren't you glad that He did? I know I am. I am so glad that when Jesus came, that He didn't just assail to the throne and take over and establish the kingdom in that day. I'm thankful that He came to provide salvation for us. I'm thankful that He came and lived the life that we could not live. Died the cruel death on the cross in our place that we should have died. I'm so thankful that by His stripes we are healed. I'm so thankful that through His atoning work on the cross, we have been forgiven and we have been brought into the family of God. And therefore, when Christ reigns and He reigns over us, we will be part of the kingdom and not, uh, not outside of the kingdom. That we are on His side, the right side. And not only will we be part of the kingdom of God, and we already are part of the kingdom of God through our salvation, but the Bible says that one day we will reign and rule with Him. And when we reign and rule with Him, the Bible says that we will also reign and rule uh, and even judge the angels. Which is why I do my best to tell you, stop saying when someone dies that God must have needed another angel. Listen, you for a little while have been made lower than the angels, but when you go to your heavenly home and are brought in and in the presence of God and reigning and ruling with Him, listen, you will be over the angels. You are demoting your loved ones by saying God turned them into angels when they they died. No, no. No, no. So all the promises of the Davidic covenant, right? And we saw in Isaiah chapter 9, uh, for example, in Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6, uh, we see, uh, for example, verses that we read at Christmas all the time where it says, For a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest upon his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 7, the dominion will be vast and his prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. And the zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. When we read those verses at Christmas time, the only thing that came to pass in his first advent, in his first coming, is for unto us a child is born and unto us a Savior is given. In other words, when He came the first time, the government didn't rest on His shoulders. He didn't assail the throne. He didn't sit on David's throne. And He didn't reign and rule forever. All of those promises are related to the second coming of Christ. So in Revelation chapter 3 where it says the one who present tense has the key of David what god is intending for us to do is to think about doors opening and closing as it relates to the second coming of christ because that is found all throughout this letter into the the end times when christ returns and reigns and rules what he is speaking of the door that he is speaking of opening and no one can closing and closing and that no one can open has to do with promises related to the second coming of Christ. In other words, church, in other words, one characteristic of the church of Philadelphia is they were a church that believed in the second coming of Christ. They were looking forward to His return. Therefore, they could be called a second coming coming church. This church lived in light of the second coming of Christ. They lived with anticipation and expectation that Christ would soon come again. And Christ commends them for that. Now what is this door though? What is this door? Well, it would be nice if the Scripture would have said, and the door is and gives us the answer, uh, but the fact is, it doesn't. There are some things that we could surmise, there are some things that we could that we could talk about. For example, some say that it's a door of salvation. It's a door of salvation. After all, Jesus says, I am the door. No one comes to the Father except by Me. So some say that the door that He's talking about here is the door of salvation. And it is brought into, it's coming into the kingdom of God. That when you are saved, that when you are born again, when you walk through Christ, the door of salvation, that you receive all the blessings and benefits of being in a right relationship with God. And as you walk with Him, all the blessings and benefits of being in right fellowship with God. Certainly, the door of salvation could be included here. And when he's talking about a door that is open and no one closes, that this is... Not just how, just not just coming into salvation, but it's the assurance of our salvation even in light of the tribulation, in light of the devastation, in light of the things that we're about to read in Revelation chapter 6 through 18. In other words, rather than merely being the door of salvation that gets us into right relationship with Christ, that the door that's open that God has brought us through and has closed behind us is a door that keeps us safe. Not only is the door of salvation that gets us into Christ and relationship with Him, but it's the door that keeps us there in that. In other words, it is a second coming eternal security passage and all the blessings that go along with being confident that your salvation is Sealed. And secure and provides the assurance of that salvation. So, in other words, in other words, just to kind of put it bluntly, the Catholic Church doesn't hold that key. Now, if you talk to your friends who are Catholics and, and you talk to them about what it means to be saved and what it means to have eternal security, they're going to say that the Catholic Church has a key, and that key is given to you through the seven sacraments of the Catholic Church. And as long as you stay engaged in the Catholic Church, you participate in those sacraments, and the priest gives you that key, then your salvation is secure as long as you remain part of the Catholic Church. That is not what the Bible teaches. It's also... Not Mary. Mary doesn't hold the key to your eternal security or the blessings that go on in this life as well. Which again is what Catholics do whenever they right pray the rosary. Hail Mary, Mother of God full of grace and truth. If you talk to a Catholic that's not just simply repeating words. They will say the best way to get a son to do something is to get the mother involved. And which is why if you want Christ to work and move on your behalf, you talk to the Holy Virgin Mother Mary who can get her son to act and move. No, 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 no. Nowhere does the Bible teach that. Sure, she was blessed among women because she was chosen and highly favored by God to give birth to the Savior, the Messiah, Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah. But she was still a lost sinner who needed to be saved just like the rest of us. She, she doesn't have any greater aspect to Christ than you and I have in terms of salvation and needing Jesus as our Lord and Savior. No special atoning sacrifice. She wasn't caught up and snatched up. She died just like everyone else died. And she died in Christ in terms of personal relationship with Him. Trusting in Him to be her Savior just like everyone else does. So no, she does not hold the key. Jesus holds the key. And the key and everything related to the second coming, our eternal security, and everything that is found... As promised in the Davidic covenant, Christ holds that key, and that is the key that when he opens, no one will close. <clears throat> remember the Jesus telling the parable of the soils? Some people call it the parable of the sower. A sower went out and he sowed seeds among. Remember, remember that? Um Basically, go back if you will. In fact, I think it's found in Luke chapter 8. Let's, let's look. Let's see who it is. Luke chapter 8. It kind of give you an idea of, of why this is so important. Luke, Luke chapter 8, there was a large crowd that was gathered and people were coming to Jesus from every town. And so he spoke to them in a parable. And while you're turning there, Luke chapter 8, verse 5, the Bible says that a sower went out to sow a seed, and he sowed some seed, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path. It was trampled on, and the birds of the sky devoured it. Other seed fell on the rock. When it grew up, it withered away, since it lacked moisture. Other seed fell among the thorns. The thorns grew up with it and choked it. Still other seed fell on good ground. And when it grew up, it produced fruit a hundred times what was sown. And he, and as He said this, He called out, Let anyone who has ears to hear, listen. Well, apparently His disciples heard and listened, but they did not understand. But I bet you out there, they were like, uh-huh, that's right. You tell them, Jesus. You tell them. That's exactly right. But then they got with Jesus alone, and they said... Uh, Look at verse 9. Then His disciples asked Him, What does this parable mean? (laughs) They didn't understand what it meant. And so He said, The secrets of the kingdom have been given for you to know, but to the rest it is in parables, so that looking they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Verse 11. This is the meaning of the parable. The seed is the Word of God. The seed along the path. Now look at this. All that to get to verse 12. Verse 12. The seed along the path are those who have heard and then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may may not believe and be saved. In other words, how did you get saved? The way that you got saved is some way, shape, or form the seed of the Gospel, which is the Word of God, came to you. Maybe someone shared the three circles. Maybe someone shared a testimony. Maybe you heard it in a church or on the radio or a faithful Sunday school teacher. But somehow, some way, the Word of God came to you and as the Word of God came to you, you begin to understand who God is in His holiness and therefore see yourself in your sinfulness and that there is no way to, to get back to God. Our sin has separated from us. And you and I both know people who started out strong and as time went on, some more quickly than others... Fell back. Fell away. And in a relatively short time, give no evidence of, save, of saving faith at all. Well, what happened? Well, according to Jesus right here, according to Jesus right here, The seed along the path are those who have heard. And then the devil comes and takes away the Word from their hearts so that they might not believe and be saved. They responded. They shot up. And then the trials and tribulations of life choked them out. The Word was planted and the devil snatched it out. Think about this. Think about your salvation. The way that you were saved is that when that word came to you, I'll promise you this that the devil and the forces of hell did not want the seed of the gospel that was planted in your life to grow and to bring forth the fruit of salvation. And if the devil could have... You do realize this. You did not slip through the cracks. And and by the way, your soil wasn't such good soil that it could hang on to the seed and overcome the devil. You know that. When the seed was placed in you... The seed of the word that grew into salvation, the reason that you are saved is not because of your accomplishments. It's because God sovereignly opened the door of salvation and no one can close it, not even the devil. Not even the devil. And with the door of salvation comes all of the promises of the Bible because the Bible says that all the promises are yes and amen in Christ. And ultimately, ultimately, our salvation is fulfilled and complete and our redemption is brought to completion by the finished work of God because He has opened a door that no one can close And therefore, by His work, sovereign work of grace in your life, you are made secure and remain where others have fallen away. Now, I don't know what that does for you, but I'll tell you what it does for me. Number one, it humbles me. Uh, because at the end of the day I didn't do anything to be saved and I can't do anything to stay saved. So number one, it humbles me. Number two, it humbles me because when I look at myself, I don't know about you, but I was not redeemable. I wasn't some good stock that God would be would, would be great for God to have me on his team. No, no, not at all. Not at all of all the people in the world with all the gifts and abilities and talents and all the resources and all the things that it would be great for for God to have on His team and have in the kingdom, when He looked at my life, none of that would have been there. None of that. There. I had nothing to bring to offer to the kingdom of God that would be a blessing to Him. Listen, I was frail, fragile, finicky. I was sinful. Still am. Nothing in my hand I could bring. And yet the Bible says that God chooses the weak things, the foolish things of the world and brings us into salvation in Christ. He opens a door that no one can close. So number one, it humbles me greatly to think that God would open that door for me. humbles me greatly. Second thing it does is it causes me to worship Him biblically because I know I don't deserve to be here. I don't need to, I don't deserve to have the opportunity to walk through that open door. I don't, I didn't deserve it. And therefore all I can do is spend the rest of my life giving Him thanks and praise for who He is because He opened that door for me. And I'm so thankful for that. So thankful for that. It causes me to want to worship Him because I know without Him opening that door, listen, and I, with Him not right, not closing that door on me, that listen, that's the only reason I'm in the family of God. And therefore my response and, and your response ought to be just a heart of worship, right? I like what this songwriter says. I'm coming back to a, a, a heart of worship, right? When the music dies and all is faded away, what simply remains is me in the presence of God. And I don't need all those, I don't need any of those things to worship God. I just need to be reminded of who I am and that God has opened the door of salvation and I am secure in Christ all the way until He returns. And then it blows my mind to think that we will be reigning and ruling with Him in heaven because He has opened a door that no one can close. The church can't close that door. Satan and his demons can't close that door. And if I can just be perfectly blunt and honest with you, I don't have the, the capacity in and of myself to close that door either. Because the Bible says this, that once we are in the hand of God, no one, not even ourselves, no one or nothing can snatch us out of the hand of God. Okay, say I have some friends, some dear friends, and we'll talk about it, eternal security, and they'll say, no one can take your salvation from you, but you can, you can gladly forfeit it. You can come to a place in your life that you are so... Involved in sin, discouraged, and that you who had tasted and seen that the Lord was good, had the ability to release and to let go and to apostatize uh, the faith. And though you were once on your way to heaven, you're no longer on your way to heaven. Beloved, the Bible doesn't know anything about that. Now, I remind you that we are children of God. And when God saved us and opened the door and we walked through uh, that door of salvation, the Bible says that we were chosen Him before the foundation of the world, that we have been re- adopted, we've been redeemed, we've been forgiven, we have been sealed, that we've done all those things. And just like when I walk across the street with Ava and she's holding on to my finger, listen, her safety and security is not in her ability to hold on to my finger, it's in my ability to hold on to her arm whether she lets go of me or not. how much more so with our salvation with Christ, that even if we were to let go for a season and backslide, He has a way to discipline and bring us back so that we return and are brought back into the family of uh, of fellowship with, with God. So here in this letter, when He says the one who has the key of David and opens and no one closes, and who closes and no one opens, He is telling them that in the midst of the world in which you live, in the midst of the tribulations and persecutions, in the midst of losing your life for your faith, because they were under perseverance and persecution as well, just like the other churches you will endure and press on to the head, to press ahead in him because he has opened the door and no one closes. And he closes and no one opens. And here's what he says in verse 8. I know your works. Now we've seen that before. Sometimes they say, I know your deeds. We've seen this before. For example, if you will, if you just look back into your Bible, Revelation chapter 2 to the letter of the church at Ephesus, He says, I know your works, your labor, and your endurance, and that you cannot tolerate evil people. I know these things about you, but you've lost your first love, is what He says to the church at Ephesus. If you go over to chapter 2, verse... 19, he says, I know your works, your love, faithfulness, service, and endurance. I know that your last works are greater than your first. In chapter 3, Chapter 3, verse 1, he says, I know your works, you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. So in those other letters where he says, I know your works, he went on to describe, I know these things about you, yet I have this against you. I know these things about you, yet this is true about you as well. When we see here to this love letter from Christ to this good church, he simply says, I know your works, and he stops. He says, I know your works. And and he stops. It's like there's an abrupt shift. He simply says to this good church, no critique at all. No critique. No condemnation. No warning about removing a lampstand. No mention of lacking love, though they're doing the right things like he did to the church at Ephesus. He simply says, and may I remind you, this church, no, they're not a perfect church. No, they didn't do everything perfectly. But this church, he simply says, I know your works. And he stops. I think the, the abrupt stop is very interesting you know what it means it means to the best of their ability this church was doing it right they were holding to the orthodoxy they were holding to the doctrines they were doing the things the church of Ephesus doing it but apparently they did it with love because he doesn't say the same thing to them that he said to the church at Ephesus they're not pretending to be something that they're not. They're not trying to say, He's not trying to say, I know your works and you think that you're alive. But in reality, you're not what you think you are. He said at other churches, He doesn't say that here. He simply says, I know your works. He doesn't say, you know what? These these works that you're doing now aren't quite what the first works were. You need to get back to those first works. He doesn't say that at all. He simply says, I know your works. And He stops. And that is a good thing. In fact, He goes on and He uses the word behold three times. Three times. You see them twice in your translation, but it's actually in there three times. And it's as if he says, "I know your works." Oh, behold! Remember when I said the word "behold" in your Bible, and it can be translated "look." In fact, Christian Standard Bible, it's 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 translated "look." Behold, note this. And that's exactly how it's translated in the Christian Standard Bible. It's to stop and to get your attention. No, he's not schizophrenic. This is not ADHD. This is not Jesus going, um, you know, focused over here. Oh, squirrel. You know, it's not that at all. He simply says, I know your works. And he says, behold, behold, behold. And next week when we come back, we're going to look at what those three beholds are that He says to this church. But for today, what I want you to see is that you who are here who know Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, that God has opened for you a door. And it's a door that no one will close. God has opened the door of salvation and God has opened the door that will keep you saved all the way through His coming, His return, and all the blessings that He has for us as we reign and rule with Him in that day. And between our salvation and between His (coughs) second coming is where we live And in between the door of salvation and in between the door of the second coming of Christ, where we are with Him, present tense, He says, I know your works. And beloved, He says that about us. And He says that about our church as well. So how are we doing? Are we engaging in the things that he's called us to engage in? Are we practicing the things that a New Testament church ought to practice? Are we, are we living in light of the return of Christ in his second coming? This was a, a church that focused on the second coming of Christ. He is the holy one. He is the true one. And beloved, he opens the door. And what should our response be to him? Our response should be to him to be all that he would want us to be strive to grow into that and to do all that he wants us to do and know that we are living our lives in light of eternity and christ says present tense i know know your works and may the works that he knows about us May they be reflective and worthy of that which He has called us and saved us unto. And may our intentions and our motives be what they ought to be. And may we do so with the love that the church at Ephesus lacked. And may we do so out of a heart of gratitude and appreciation as we walk in obedience with Him. When He says, I know Your works, beloved, He expects us to be faithful. He expects us to be obedient. And if our perspective and attitude is right, then we certainly will be. So next week we have three beholds and then we come to some of the most wonderful truths that you're going to find when we get to verse 10. Uh, in the New Testament. We're going to spend some time there on what it means and directly as it relates to the tribulation and things to come. Much, much work to do uh, in this letter and many truths to uh, embrace. Let's stand together and pray.